BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Sasha Coca. It's the California Report magazine. This Thanksgiving weekend, we're reprising a special episode about family and belonging. It's something that really hit home for everybody on our team because all three of us are daughters of immigrants. Susie Racho, who's our producer director. Hey there, Suze. Hi, Sash. And Victoria Mauleon, who is our senior editor. Hey, Vic. Hi, Sasha. All of us have a connection to a heritage language, the language that our parents spoke or grew up speaking. And in my case, that language is Punjabi or Hindi. My dad spoke both languages. But, you know, he didn't teach me as a kid. You know, coming to the U.S. in the 1960s, he thought it was way more pragmatic for his kids to learn English. So I didn't actually get to learn Hindi until I was in graduate school in my late 20s. At which point I ended up with a really bad accent. And every time I try to practice with my family, they just answer me in English and laugh at my accent. And it's it's pretty embarrassing. Oh, that sounds really hard. I have a really similar situation. I mean, my parents spoke two different Filipino dialects. And, you know, I think they thought once they immigrated here that the way for their kids to succeed was to learn English. And so when I go out sometimes, you know, I'll get somebody who's Filipino. They start speaking to me in Tagalog or their dialect, and I answer back in English. And I can tell that that person is so disappointed that I am not speaking in the same language as them. Vic, your situation's a little bit different because you actually do speak your dad's heritage language. Yeah, I mean, Spanish was actually my first language. My father was a Spaniard. And, you know, over time I became bilingual, and I feel so appreciative of that. But, you know, when my dad passed away almost 18 years ago, I kind of lost that person I could just speak Spanish to all the time. And kind of like the longer that time passes and the longer that I go between seeing my relatives in Spain, I kind of feel my language slipping away. And um, Spanish was actually my son's first language. I was like, I'm going to make it a point to teach him Spanish But as soon as he went to an English-only speaking school, 
he kind of lost it too. Um, he's studying Spanish now again, and I am really, really, really hoping he hangs on to it. Mm-hmm. For those of us who are mixed race and only one parent speaks the heritage language, it's even harder. And that's why when our intern, Izzy Bloom, joined our team, we knew that she was one of us because she has the same situation. I mean, she has to tell people the same story all the time when they ask her if she could speak Japanese, which is her mom's heritage language. And she would just say she's not as good as she'd like to be because her mom didn't teach her older brother. And because he wasn't taught Japanese, neither was she. It sounds simple enough, but the real story is much more complicated. Here's Izzy with our show this week. My parents, Ira and Yasuko Bloom, met in Japan in 1986 in Okayama Prefecture. My mom was working as a fashion designer. And my dad, who's American, was living there for a few years teaching English. Was it New Year's Eve or it was a couple days before New Year's, right? It was a New Year's party. It was a New Year's party, right? I was with my friend Tokumori, and uh, we were sitting down at this yakitoria, and Tokusan said, are you going to go talk to her? And I said, I don't know. She's really pretty. And he said, if you don't go talk to her, I'll go talk to her. And so he started to stand up. I put my hand on his knee and I said, nope, I'll go. He walked over to her table and introduced himself. He was loud, <laughs> not shy, and you know, when, when I started talking to him, he was funny. He tried to make a joke. Just three months later, my parents were engaged. And five months after that, they got married and moved to the United States. You know, I wanted to have a different challenge for my life. and. Uh, it was not a difficult decision for me to come to the United States. I can't imagine myself meeting someone and then just months later marrying them and moving across the world to a country where I barely speak the language. But for my mom, it's kind of fitting. I've always known her to be determined and purposeful, someone who knows what she wants. Not long after she and my dad moved to the U.S., they started a women's clothing line in California. And once their business was steady, they bought a house, and my mom got pregnant with my brother Max. My parents love telling stories about how my older brother Max was the easiest baby. He would go up to anybody and just raise his arms up, and they would, to be picked up, and people, complete strangers, would pick him up, and they would make a big fuss over him. He was a really cute kid. Yeah, that's what I remember. You were raising a baby, every moment, this is the best time. How far is it going to go the best time? Being how she is, my mom had a clear idea of how she wanted to raise my brother. Two things were non-negotiable. Teaching him Japanese and breastfeeding. But breastfeeding was way harder than she expected. You know, when I tried to do the breastfeeding and I couldn't do it, I felt really bad. I felt fairly fail something I really wanted to, to do for him. My mom told me she suspected there was a connection between Max's inability to breastfeed and the difficult time she had giving birth to him. She had to have an emergency C-section. And when Max was born, he had what's called floppiness, which is kind of what it sounds like. 
Max's head would flop because of weak muscle tone. And his weak muscle tone was also the reason he wasn't able to breastfeed. She brought these concerns to Max's pediatrician, but each time he'd brush her off and say it's fine. He's a happy baby. All first-time mothers worry. And you know, once my mom made the switch from formula milk to regular food, Max had no problems eating. I cook baby baby food. I try to cook all by myself. And then I usually make a, a steamed broccoli. And then he ate everything. And I was, I was a little bit proud. See, I made a baby food. He ate everything what I made. My mom's first non-negotiable fell apart. She couldn't breastfeed. But she was giving Max fresh, homemade baby food. He was chubby and happy. And my mom still had Japanese, the other thing she really wanted to do for Max. Teach him his heritage language. I thought that being bilingual, is, uh, it could be a great gift. Even though, as you can hear, my mom speaks English really well, this is after living in the U.S. for 34 years. Back then... I worry about my kids doesn't understand who I am, what I really meant. Not only linguistically, it's just as a, as a person. I did worry about if, I, if, you, if my kids doesn't understand the Japanese, maybe never get really know me. So my mom spoke to Max exclusively in Japanese. When he was a newborn, she really loved carrying Max and singing Japanese lullabies to him. I carrying around and walking around the house and very calm, and I singing, uh, singing, you know, the song, and I, he sleeps. But Max wasn't really picking up Japanese or English, which my dad was speaking to him. We didn't had never had a baby before, so we didn't really know how profound his developmental delay was. I mean, not only that, but his doctor told us that he was fine. And uh, the developmental delay, he wasn't concerned about. So we weren't concerned about it. I I was. Well, yeah. I was always, she was always concerned. Old. Yeah, because he never hit his milestones like I other kids. I read every single book. I, even though I, I remember I was searching that milestone like Max had. And I didn't know how severe his uh, uh, development, but... Um, I knew something wrong. Mm -hmm. My mom told me Max wasn't hitting any of the milestones we look for in children. He never actually crawled. He didn't sit up until he was six months old. And he didn't say his first word until he was two years old. Once my mom started taking Max to daycare, the difference between him and other kids his age was so glaringly obvious. She insisted on getting Max genetically tested. Max was three years old when our parents finally found out what was going on. What was it like to find out about Max when you got the diagnosis? Wow. Um, the feeling, 
I still don't forget it. The kind of the feeling you never felt before. We were devastated. Uh, uh, went through the grieving process. I mean, I remember everything. Uh, being angry, denying it, bargaining. Uh, you know, uh, anger, boy. That was really something. In 1997, Max was diagnosed with Prader-Willi syndrome. It's a rare genetic disorder. At the time, everything my mom read about it would only heighten her concern. The most distinct condition for people with Prader-Willi syndrome is hyperphagia, an unrelenting hunger and compulsive urge to consume food. Basically, the trigger in most of our brains that tells us we've had enough food is missing in my brother. So he'll rummage in garbage cans and steal the cat's food and needs constant supervision. Along with a lack of impulse control, Max has learning disabilities and physical challenges too. Hi, my name is Max Bloom. I'm 27 years old and I play the Willie Syndrome. Can you tell me what you're doing? I'm playing my Pac-Man thing. Pac-Man arcade game. Polar syndrome is a syndrome where you, where you never feel full. You um, have um, anger problems. You, ha- you have trouble keeping, keeping up with your hygiene. And, um, and that's about it. I'm in Vacaville at my brother's care home. It's like a group home for adults, specifically for people with PWS, because he needs a lot of support and 24-7 supervision. We're in his room, which he shares with one other person. He made his bed and lined up his action figures on the windowsill. Can you describe to me what you're wearing right now? I'm wearing a fluorescent shirt with birds and um, camouflage pants. Max really likes color and patterns. He used to do a lot of artwork that was always really vivid and abstract. And I have my um, um, flame print shoes that I got from my girlfriend. Max goes on to describe his superhero hat and all the things he's wearing that his girlfriend gave to him. Can you count how many bracelets and how many necklaces you're wearing right now? Yes, I'm count- I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten, ten, ten um, bracelets, non-cleaning watch, and then um, three, three necklaces. I know it's a little extreme, but that's how I like. That's how I like dressing. That's how I like looking. What does it feel like for you to have Prader-Willi syndrome? It feels like for me that um, that it's just hard. To, it's just hard to do things and stuff. It's it's hard to fit in and it's hard to um um to have a regular life. That's that's basically what it is. Why is it hard to fit in and why is it hard to have a regular life? <laughs> it's hard to fit in because, because some people don't um, um, understand and um, you can't do things like other people do. So that, that's what I mean. What kind of things can't you do? <laughs> like, like, like you don't get like have, have like a full-time job, you don't get a drive, you don't get to um, do that type of stuff. What do you think is like the hardest part of having Prader-Willi syndrome? People understanding you. People understanding um, how, how you feel. Just just communication-wise, it's hardest. After he was diagnosed, 
Max's pediatrician told our parents they should stop talking to him in Japanese. His language development at this point was so delayed that our parents feared if he didn't get a grasp on English soon, he'd face even more difficulties in school. He wouldn't be able to socialize with other kids. He'd have a harder time learning. We were ready to go along with anything to get him to start talking. But for my mom, this was a tough decision. Because like she said, it was really important for her children to truly know her. To know the person she is in Japanese. Using my own language is, even the way I think, where I express is different. When I go back to Japan still, I always feel ah, relaxed because of I don't need to listen to it. You're saying like there's a part of your personality or there's a part of the way you think that doesn't come out in English. Mm. Mm. Maybe maybe come up a little differently. She went to lots of people for advice. But Max's speech-language pathologist and his pediatrician and my mom's friends and my dad, everyone seemed to agree that if she wanted Max to learn English, it had to be English only. And I've kind of always believed that this was the reason I wasn't raised bilingual. When people ask me if I know any Japanese, which happens all the time, this is the story I tell. When my brother was diagnosed, his doctors told my parents not to raise him in a bilingual household. And so when I was born five years after Max, it was just too complicated for my mom to only speak to one child in Japanese. I wanted to know if the recommendations my parents were getting from Max's doctors had any scientific validity. Is it detrimental to raise a child with Prader-Willi syndrome in a bilingual household? The main focus of our study was to uh, analyze the effects of bilingualism among the Prader-Willi syndrome population. That's Estela Garcia Alcaraz. She's an assistant professor at the University of Balearic Islands in Spain. And in February 2021, she published her dissertation about PWS and bilingualism. It's the only study I could find focusing on the rare syndrome my brother has. She looked at how participants with PWS were able to complete certain cognitive and linguistic tasks. And she compared Spanish monolinguals with bilinguals who speak Spanish and Catalan. We consistently don't find evidences of a negative effect of bilingualism Here's Juana Liceras. She's the supervising professor for Garcia Alcaraz's study. And it doesn't interfere with uh, communication, thinking, or work. Liceras is a linguist and has a son with PWS. His name is Ivo. By the time Ivo was diagnosed at 11 years old, he was already bilingual. Liceras raised him to speak both English and Spanish. English because they live in Canada— and Spanish because that's Evo's heritage language. Other advantages that uh, my son was not deprived of because he was bilingual. He could go to Spain, he could talk to all our friends, to his family there, and he felt proud of it. Liceras pointed out to me that bilingualism may be even more beneficial when it's your heritage language. Because just like in my case, it affects the way the rest of the family communicates, the way culture is passed down. 
Do you think that your family dynamic would have been different if Ivo didn't learn his heritage language? I think so. His brother would not have continued with Spanish and would not have been a, a bilingual. Along with talking to Garcia Alcaraz and Liceras, I read lots of studies and research papers about the effect of multilingualism on kids with autism or Down syndrome. And again and again, it was the same result. The bilingualism has not shown itself, right, you know, to be more taxing, to be interfering. One language doesn't slow another one down. That's Betty Yu. I'm a professor in the Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences Department at San Francisco State University. She says her research focuses on language development among racialized bilingual children with disabilities. Kids just like my brother. I had always kind of accepted this idea that Max's doctors were right. I guess intuitively, it made sense to me that if your child's language development is delayed, then yeah, learning two languages is probably more confusing and you should just cut back to one. But that's just not the case. And this really made me question my own assumptions. Why wouldn't I assume that neurodivergent kids like Max could benefit from knowing multiple languages like anyone else? The U.S. situation is that you really need to prove yourself with English before your multilingualism is seen as an asset. Betty Yu says bilingualism is perceived as good or bad depending on who you are. If you're in a privileged situation or your access to English is really solid, then knowing more languages is viewed as an advantage. It's tied up a lot with views on immigration, on race. Language can't be divorced from those things. You know, bilingualism is um, often seen as a barrier to the achievement of a norm. So when we're talking about disability, disability as something that's seen as abnormal, those two things sort of mutually enforce each other. Speech-language pathologists are also overwhelmingly racially white. In 2020, the American Speech-Language Hearing Association's member demographic was 92% white. The research is spreading about the benefits of speaking more than one language for all of us, neurodivergent or not. But Betty Yu still hears from parents who are advised not to raise children with developmental disabilities in a bilingual household. Calling Grandma from the East Coast. Hello? Hey, Grandma. Hi. It's me again. Yeah. Max calls Um, up our dad's family on the East Coast almost daily. Usually to just tell our grandma what he ate that day. Just like when he was a baby, Max is incredibly social. Whether it's the guy who works in the produce section at the local supermarket, or the waitress who somehow knows his name, Max has friends everywhere. Do you wish that you learned Japanese growing up? Yes, it would make life a lot, life a lot easier to, to, to understand my mom, my dad, and, my, and so, I can, so, I can, so I can talk to my um, family on, uh, in Japan. But why is that important to you? It's important to me because I want to be able to fit in there. Do you think you definitely could have learned Japanese? Definitely, yeah. If my mom, if my mom, if my mom could have, my mom taught it to me, yeah. 
I shared everything I'd found out with our mom, all this new research. And I really expected her to say, if she could do it all over again, she'd raise Max bilingual. You know, what made uh, his life different at this point, I don't know. If he's bilingual, made him so different. Are you mad at any of those doctors? Or are you resentful? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't mad. It, because it was a final, it's my decisions. I, I made the decisions. Do you blame yourself? Mm. Mm. I could do better. How? To stay in a bilingual. Could have fought harder, you think? You don't need to fight with it because I'm the one doing the bilingual. They suggest I don't think it's no good idea. That's what the, their, their opinions. So I take opinions and I make actions. So it's my decision. When we talked earlier, you had said that one of your biggest fears about not raising Max bilingual and then me is that your children wouldn't understand you? No, it didn't happen. Why? Hmm, why? To me, to be the best parents is how to listen to what your kids says rather than pushing my words to the children. But what makes you think that me and Max understand you? Hmm. Because we, we talk, we talk with each other, even in English. And I, I'm not 100% Japanese anymore. I don't know who am I. I'm, am I. Am I Americans? Am I Japanese? Where's my own country? I'm, when I go to Japan, I'm a little bit stranger. Of course, when I'm in the United States, I'm a little bit stranger. When I visit my family in Japan and can't talk to them in Japanese, I feel like a little bit of a stranger too. This fear of not being understood that both my brother and my mom expressed, I have my own version of it. Not having the language or the words to express yourself can feel like you're missing the most important tool to help people get to know the real you. But I understand why my mom's fears didn't come true. Communication is a lot more nuanced than just the words we use. In Japanese, people don't really say, I love you. There's a literal translation for it. But I've never heard anyone in my family use it. My mom told me she's never once said I love you to her mom, and she can't remember her mom ever saying it to her. But we know the love is there. The way my mom tells me is by always picking up the phone when I call, by listening to me, by cooking my favorite Japanese foods whenever I come home to visit. Like this one weekend not that long ago, Max was also visiting our parents' home in Sonoma County. They were cooking dinner, and Max was hovering at the edge of the kitchen. He's really good at stealing food, so he's not allowed in the kitchen. But he's kind of dancing around the edge, enjoying watching dinner being prepared. Um, um, tamago means egg. Lingo means apple. Um, oh, gohan means rice. <laughs> Max has picked up some Japanese over the years. And of course, most of it has to do with food. What is the word for raw fish, Max? Raw fish? Yeah. Uh, raw fish? 
Sashimi? Oh. Yeah. Sashimi, I got it. Yes, I got it. <laughs> Izzy Bloom produced this story while working as an intern on our show, and it was her thesis at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Thanks to Shireen Marisol Miraji, Anna Sussman, Quina Kim, Sophie Codner, Elena Neal Sachs, Stephen Ruscone, and Noah Boston. And congratulations to Izzy for graduating with her master's in journalism. Special thanks on this week's show to Yasko, Ira, and Max Bloom, to Estela Garcia Alcaraz, Juana Liceras, and Betty Yu. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Gracias por escuchar este programa. Our producer-director is Susie Racho. Kamayan Kaba. Brendan Willard is our engineer. Our team also includes Amanda Font and Amy Mayer. Meranam Sasha Kokahe. This is the California Report Magazine, your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.